thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. And now, here's Pastor John Hill. Let's dive in. Good morning. Man, you guys sounded awesome. It's always fun to be able to hear other people sing uh, in a room without the musicians and the singers as great as they are. Well, the musicians, but the, you know, the singers. It was good to hear you guys. Some of you guys, man, you need to be on the praise team. Um, Some of you don't need to be on the praise team, but you were singing with your hearts and that was awesome. Um, My name's John. I'm excited to be here to kick off our next part of our Reply All series. As you saw from the video, we are talking about how we respond to difficult relationships in our life. And we were looking, we've been looking at the life of David, who was the king of Israel, second king of Israel, uh, way, way back, hundreds, thousands, a thousand or so years ago, a thousand or more years ago. And he uh, had different kinds of relationships in his life. And so what we've been doing is kind of parachuting in on different parts of his life to see uh, types of relationships that we might deal with today. Aren't you glad to know that as uh, ancient as God's word is, it still remains current in terms of the issues because people don't really change. They just change, you know, what kind of structure they live in and what city they call it and how they name their kids. But the point is, is, is that we get a chance to look today at our fourth kin respond. Then uh, in our first week, we talked about uh, how we can respond uh, when our family uh, is the problem, right? When our family is the issue. And so we looked at King David and his family and how he was anointed king over Israel. And we talked about how to deal with our family structures and where we come from. We talked in the second week about how to respond when the problem is your child, uh, which uh, was a great text to be able to learn from about David and dealing with some of the things that he had to deal with with his son Absalom and some of his kids. Uh, And then we last week talked about when the problem is your boss. And uh, so I don't ask for people to point out where these problems are because then, you know, some are sitting with you, but I don't know if anybody's sitting with their boss, uh, but I, I have my boss in the room today. But anyway, um, so I'm glad that's not this week. And then this week, part four, we're going to talk about when the problem is your spouse. Wow. <laughs> Visceral reactions. Had that in the first service, too. So it was like, oh, wow. Uh, I saw couples move further apart. You know, I saw all kinds of things. In the first service. Some, some of you hear that and, and, you know, some of the guys are thinking, oh, great, another husband bashing message. I don't want to be here for this. Uh, some of the wives are thinking, wait, we're going to bash wives. Is that what's going on? Because you're a dude. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and some of you know I'm married. And so, yeah, I'm a husband. So are you going to bash wives? And so you're like, oh, man, what about that? At least one person's in here thinking, wait a minute, uh, spouse. Didn't we talk about this last week when we covered when uh, the problem is your boss? Because uh, some of you think your spouse is your boss. And so... Um, so there's that. Some of you might be in the room and you're single and you're unmarried and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know if this is really going to apply to me. Uh, maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're a widow. And so you have a broken heart and you've been dealing with that mess. And you're like, wow, you know, this would have been great two years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and so I don't know if this is for me. And yet others of you, well, we're not officially married. We're together. And some of us might even live together. 
but we're not officially married, so this is really for us. And I want to tell you and encourage each of you to hang in there. Don't tune it out. Uh, don't quit on this just because you may think that your life situation doesn't fit into this. Because we're going to talk about uh, some truths that I think apply to all of us and actually even in many ways apply to different relationships, not just a spouse. Uh, and so I'm just going to encourage you to hang in there. Uh, let's start with this as a foundation. All human relationships have some level of problems and tension. Amen? Some, some of you, okay, good, all right. Uh, I'm not asking you to point to your problem or your tension. I'm just saying they all have problems and tension. So that's number one that we have to accept. Romantic relationships, for sure, but other relationships, as we've been talking about, that's why we have this series. So we know that everybody has tension and problems in a relationship. The second thing, though, is that, um, that they're, all the problems that, that are in each relationship are never only one person's fault. Okay, no agreement on that. Okay, that's cool because I, like, I don't know, Pastor, I'm uh, pretty sure it's their problem. But, um, but, but we're going to kind of unpack this as we go forward. But it's important for you to understand that that's one of our foundations that I'm going to show you today. Uh, and then lastly, uh, when it comes to the problems and actually more the people that are in the relationship, we cannot change like other people. You, you know that, right? We can really only be responsible for ourselves. We cannot affect or make someone else change or be changed or even save them or any of those things. All we can really do is control our own response. We cannot control another person. So as we, as we go into this, I want us to remember those three things, and we're going to keep talking about those three things uh, throughout our time together. And we're going we're gonna to jump into a time in David's life uh, that, just to set up the context, he is now king, Okay. Uh, we've been talking, we talked about that a little bit when it was the problem was your child and he's dealing with his children and the fallout from a scenario that we're actually going to discuss next week. But, but he is the king uh, at this time that we're going to read about in just a moment. Uh, and what's important is this is right at the end of a long battle that you actually heard about last week if you're here. And if you weren't, then you want to check it out online when the problem is your boss. And he's been dealing with Saul, King Saul, for a long time. When we first met David in our first week, he was, he was kind of a kid out watching the sheep, you know, doing the family chores, really the worst of the family chores. Uh, and he was told that he would be the next king, but he wasn't the next king yet. And it was years later that he would become the king. In the meantime, there was this battle going on with him and Saul, more Saul trying to get rid of him, but him, you know, dealing with it too. And they went back and forth through a series of years, a series of events that you've been hearing about throughout some of the other messages. We're now at the point where Saul has, has died. He's dead. He died in battle, kind of fell on his own sword, kind of a weird thing. But anyway, he, he's gone. And so now David has become king. The problem, though, is that just like in any transition, any leadership transition, any type of takeover, any of that, there's always some people who are still on the side of the old regime, if you will, right? And they're holding on because they want it to stay the way it was. So even in the case of Saul, as he died and moved on, there were those who believed that it should have been someone from Saul's army, like maybe a general, or maybe it should be one of Saul's family members, or it should be one of his children. Somebody from Saul's side should take over, not David. So there's this whole group of people that, is, you know, that has their allegiance to Saul and to his way of things. So David wants to unify the kingdom. In his effort to unify the kingdom, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into a city known as Jerusalem. We know it well now. But he's going to build this city basically for God. And they even would call it the city of David that he would build. Uh, and he was going to build a temple. He was going to build a structure. And he wanted to house the Ark there. The Ark for the Israelites represented the presence of God, the favor of God, the approval of God. So he's like, we want to bring this back. We want to get this in. Now, the problem is they tried to move it, and it kind of got messed up. And now it's been parked for a while at some dude's garage. Like, it's been in his house. 
okay? Uh, and his name is Obed-Edom, all right? So it says, King David, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 6, verse 12. So if you have a, a Bible or a device with a Bible or if you want to watch the screen, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. The point is, is that David hears that things are going well for Obed-Edom because he has the ark there. So David concludes, God's not mad at us anymore. He, we have his favor. Everything's going okay. We kind of messed up trying to move it, but now we're good. So let's go get the ark. And they're going to come back with rejoicing and partying and everything. It's going to be an awesome kind of spectacle experience. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed the bull and fattened calf. David realizes we need to make sacrifices along the way. We need to make sure God stays okay with this and what we're doing, so he makes sacrifices. Then in verse 14, he's wearing a linen ephod, and he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. I don't know what this looks like, but David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and you've danced with all your might. I've never done dancing with all my might. But somehow he's dancing hard. He's wearing this linen ephod, which is sort of a priestly kind of a garment. And he's out there and he's just, you know, doing what David does. All right, you guys don't want to see me dance at all. But anyway, <laughs> while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So there's a, there's a band, like the Tower of Power horn section's going. There's rejoicing. There's, you know, shouts. People are like, woo! You know, it's like the Super Bowl. And they're bringing this ark in and they're super, super pumped. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David... Michael, daughter of Saul. I love that she's defined as the daughter of Saul. Remember, there's a whole allegiance of people that are for Saul still. Watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So she had a hatred for David. Okay? So at least one person is not into this. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set its place inside the tent that David had pitched. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, burnt offerings for sin, fellowship offerings for being in a good relationship with God uh, before the Lord. And, and, and after he had finished sacrificing the burnt and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. So he begins to bless them verbally, and then he starts a stimulus program. Verse 15 or 19, sorry. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, and it would not be taxed. Okay, and then both men and women and all the people went to their homes. Of course they did. They had cakes and bread, so they go. <clears throat> so then David, it says in verse 20, this is what I really want to zero in, returned home to bless his household. Michael, daughter of Saul again, comes out to meet him. So now we realize Michael is David's wife, but she despises him in his heart, in her heart. And she says, oh, and I can't even do this sarcastically enough. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. You look great, David. Today going around half naked in full view of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David, you thought you were cool doing your little magic mic thing out there with all those girls watching. But, but I'm, not, I'm hip to what you're really doing. See, she was already suspicious because notice she mentions the slave girls of his servants. You're not dancing for the Lord. You're not dancing for the people. You're dancing for these girls over here so that they would see you. Now, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Now, I've heard messages on this text. Maybe you have too. And in these messages, Michael is always the evil wife, <coughs> excuse me, who's not a believer. Hold on a second. 
it's always weird to try to figure out when you can take a drink in a message. But anyway, of water. Uh, and so, let's <laughs> make that clear. That's water. So you're a little suspicious. I know. It might be your first time in church. It's like, what's in that bottle, Pastor? Um, so as, as we start, you, you think this whole message, I've heard the message talk about it's the evil wife and then the worshiping, because David's a man after God's own heart, is he not? We've heard that. They describe him that way in the New Testament. David's a man after God's own heart. Was a man after God's own heart. So David must be the hero, and she's the antagonist. You know, she's the one that's just, you know, bickering at him and, and, and really nagging at him and just trying to pull him down. And David says, it was before the Lord that I was dancing. But then he reveals himself. Who chose me rather than your father or anyone from your house when he appointed me rule over, Lord, or over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord because he loves me more than you and your father. Nanny, nanny, nanny. That's what he's doing. Not a man after God's own heart, really. Verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this. They wrote a worship song on this. And there's people like, I don't care how. I'll be sloppy and messy. I'm undignified before the Lord. But really what David is doing is he's shooting back at her sarcasm. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Notice Dave's priority. Well, the, these girls think I look good. Well, that's kind of what Michael was saying at the beginning. What you see here is incredible tension between David and Michael. You see it? Can you feel it? Some of you are feeling better already about your own marriage. You're like, wow. Wow. I was real worried, but wow. Because the reality is, is, that, is, is that it's not a situation where David is the worshiping giant who's just out there loving the Lord and just dancing around, doesn't matter. And it's not that Michael's going, listen, nobody rolls out of bed bitter. You don't just roll out of bed one day and go, you know, everything's been fine, but now I despise my husband. Nobody does that. And if you think about your own relationship in, in, in your own marriage, your romantic relationship, whether you're married or single and dating or living together or whatever, if you're having a struggle with tension, if you're starting to feel negative feelings toward the other, you, will, you do not just all of a sudden automatically feel that way. There's always a history. Remember what we said. Every relationship has problems. Every relationship has tension. And those problems are never only one person's fault. So let me show you where the hero is not so heroic. I want you to think back to how Saul and David met. When Saul and David, I'm sorry, Saul, Michael and David became husband and wife, they became husband and wife because Saul gave Michael to David in marriage. This happened right after David defeated Goliath, which we heard about in the first week in chapter 17. David defeats Goliath. One of the perks of defeating Goliath was that you would get a bunch of stuff, including one of Saul's daughters as your wife, which makes you the king's son-in-law, which gives you a pretty high status. The problem is when the king offered his first daughter to David, David, still as you know, a young person, very humble before God, said, I, I'm not really worthy to be the king's son-in-law. I can't do this. I'm not really built for that. That's not really my, my station in life. I kind of come from a, a family that doesn't have a lot. I'm, I'm sort of at the bottom or the end of the line of that family. All of those things. So Saul gave his older daughter to somebody else. But then in verse 20 of chapter 18, or yeah, verse uh, 20 of chapter 18, we see that Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. Now, Michael's the second daughter of Saul, and she's in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Now, remember, in the text we started in 2 Samuel 6, we're in 1 Samuel, but in 2 Samuel, so years later, she's in love with David, but when we saw her in 2 Samuel, she despised him. What has happened in between? 
Well, it turns out that in verse 21, Saul said, I will give her to him so that she may be a snare to him, a trap, trip him up, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now, you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. All grins, you know, hey, hey, listen, listen, you're good, you're a good guy. And then what he did is he sent some of his own messengers to whisper in David's ear and make him realize how great it would be to be the son-in-law of the king. And David starts to listen. And Saul only has... One requirement for him to become, even though he's already defeated uh, Goliath, uh, he only had one requirement for David to be able to marry Michael, and that was that he would go and kill 100 Philistines. And Saul's plan, according to verse 25b, was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. His plan was that David would go out and try to kill 100 Philistines, but he would be killed in the process, and then he would be rid of David, who was supposed to be the next king. Michael, meanwhile, is just being traded back and forth and being used as bait for David to go do this. David does so well, he doesn't just kill 100 Philistines, he kills 200. He comes back and he, and, and he has proof for Saul, and, and Saul has to then, according to verse 27, give him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. But Saul's not done, because the very next chapter, in chapter 19, we read in verse 11, that Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him. But Michael's, David's wife, warned him. So at some point in David and Michael's marriage, there was fondness there in some way. Because Michael warns that she chooses David over her father. Not really hard to imagine because her father just sort of used her as bait and sent her and was the political alignments and all that. So she warns David. He climbs out and runs. And now he's off for running. If you were here last week, you heard most of the rest of that. Like him and Saul going back and forth and all the stuff that's going on. Meanwhile... Michael, to, to ward off her dad, puts an idol into the bed, covers it, so that when they come in, she's saying, David's sick, he's not here. They look and see the idol, they think it's David, they don't bother him. They find out later that, it, that she had lied, and so she asks, or Saul asks Michael, and she says, well, I was worried and feeling threatened because David told me he would hurt me if I didn't help him. And that was just to be safe with Saul, because Saul would not have been happy if she'd have chosen David over Saul, clearly. The point being that while David's on the run, Michael is still stuck with Saul. David goes on the run, and you would think David's out there fighting, and he's you know, winning battles, and he's you know, writing letters back home to Michael, I miss you, and all of that. But that's not what we read. What we read in 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 39b, that David sent word to Abigail, who was a widow. She had just lost her husband, asking her to become his wife. Wait, 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 what? Oh, we're not done, though. Oh, oh wait, the two verses later, three verses later, David had also married uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. Okay, so, okay, so you're on the run, and, and I'll, you know, okay, I understand in some ways you've been separated from a wife that you probably didn't even hardly have enough time for a honeymoon, so now you're out there and all of that, and she's a widow, and so, okay, in the culture and all that, but then you go ask a second woman? Oh, and then in 2 Samuel 3, we're told that there were sons born to David in Hebron, Hebron. His firstborn, Amnon, remember he's the one who raped his, anyway, from, if you, yeah, okay. He was the son of Ahinoam, who he married. His second, second Kiliab, was the son of Abigail. The third, Absalom, who caused all the problems in one message, the son of Maacah. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagit. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. That's six sons. 
He's like, Oprah, you get a son, and you get a son, and you get a son. (laughs) David isn't just on the run making one mistake. He's doing it over and over and over again. David had a problem with women. Meanwhile, Saul kind of gets fed up with the whole thing, and chapter 25 of 1 Samuel has his daughter Michael, David's wife, married to Paltiel, the son of Laish. So now he sent two daughters off because of David to two different men, and Michael's with this guy, Paltiel. Now pick up back at the story we're at in chapter 6, and David is trying to unite the kingdom. And in his effort to unite the kingdom, back in chapter 3, what we're told is before he brings the ark, he decides that part of uniting the kingdom would be to get Michael back because Michael is Saul's daughter. So all the people who are in favor of Saul and love Saul and want Saul's, his daughter would be the queen. So wouldn't that make a lot of sense? The problem is it's after these six other women with six kids. And so he sends, and not to mention, Michael's already married to another guy. So he makes a deal with Saul's general Abner and tells him, hey, listen, we'll work together and we'll unite this kingdom, but you got to get me Michael. So Abner sends word to her brother, who she's living with, and tells her brother to rip Michael away from that guy. And David sends messengers, not even himself. David sends messengers to go get her. And in one of the saddest passages in Scripture, we see in verse 16 that her husband went with her, weeping behind her all the way. Of all the people in Michael's life, this guy actually loved her. And he was brokenhearted because she was being taken from him. It's not the first time David would take someone from someone else. And the reality is, is that in the midst of all of this, no one just rolls out of bed bitter. Look what happens to Michael afterwards. She's described in 2 Samuel 6, verse 23, as the daughter of Saul who had no children to the day of her death. Wait a minute. You mean David who could give a child to almost anybody? And she never got You know what that says? There's no intimacy. It was purely a political alliance. He took her, stuck her in a house, and used her to be able to unite the kingdom and never shared any time with her. He was too busy sharing time with everybody else and all his other kids. So let's recap just to get this straight. Michael's used by her father for his selfish gain. She's separated from David due to her loyalty. David marries several other women while on the run from Saul. Michael is then sent to another man to be married. David forgets about her for years before becoming king. Once king, he demands her back even though she's married. And the only man who probably ever loved her weeps and begs for her, but he's sent back as she's ripped away and sent to David. In addition to this, David has many kids from different women, and Michael is left childless. Here's the thing. David might have been a man after God's own heart, but he was a terrible husband. It's never only one person's fault. Everybody gets to eat part of the blame pie. Now, I'm not talking about it in situations where there's abuse or danger or any of that kind of stuff, but in, in, in average situations, in, in, in 90% of the cases that, we, that we're going to talk about in most of our marriages, no one can say that the other person is the only one who's at fault. Because remember, all human relationships have problem intentions. All of those problems are never one person's fault, and we can only control what we do. So as we look at this, and as we look at the story of Michael and David, how do we respond when we have a problem, and that problem is our spouse? Well, here's maybe the frustrating, but hopefully the freeing part of this. 
is that you can't really make a response to them. The reality is, because we can only control what we do, our response really is about what we're going to do in that marriage, what we're going to do in that relationship, what we're going to do. If you're single, what are you going to do to prepare yourself for a relationship? Because you can only control what you do. You cannot control what the other person does. And I know that some of you may have come here today and you were hoping that you were going to get, as you even heard that, that we're going to talk about spouses, and I know some of you kind of took a look at your spouse, mm-hmm, okay, this is the day. And you were hoping for this quick fix that you're going to get, this, this little point, this thing that's going to change that person. You'll be disappointed. Because the goal isn't to change that person. The goal should be to change the environment of your relationship so that God can meet you in that place and begin to change your life and then theirs so that your marriage can be stronger or that your relationship can be stronger. It's not a situation where we're going to try to find a way to change someone else. So how do we do that? I want to give you three starting points. You know, we talk about how to respond. uh, How do we create this environment? How is it that we begin to, to put into our relationships the kinds of scenarios and environments that will help us meet with God and then help God do what God does. Because here's the thing. We can only really do what we can do, right? We can only respond ourselves. We can only do what we can do. And then we got to trust God to do what only he can do. And the thing that God can do that none of us can do is change lives. And change lives can lead to restored marriages. And restored marriages can lead to renewed hope. And renewed hope can lead to incredible impact in the lives of those around you. That's what we want out of our marriages. And so here's the first starting point, if you will, of how to respond to your spouse. It's this. Let Jesus have your heart first and then give it to your spouse, not the other way around. Too many of us are putting our spouses and our relationships ahead of God. Some of you might be sitting here and there is no God in your relationship. Some of you have some God. Some of you have had God for a long time but it's kind of gotten stale. The reality is is that in all of life, as individuals as well as those who are married in relationships, raising kids, being kids, working, all of those things, everything we've talked about, if God is not the primary relationship in your life, then you're going to struggle with all of your relationships. And what happens is for some of us, we still think the Jerry Maguire philosophy that we're going to find somebody so that we can say one day, you complete me. And that person does not exist. And guess what? You're not that for anybody else. Now, I know we all say that when we're dating. We all say that before we get married. Some of us put in our vows. Some of us showed that clip at our wedding. Only me? Okay. And the thing is, is that's our dream. That's what we hope for. But the truth is... We cannot complete each other without God. So it has to come first. The priority has to be our relationship with Jesus. Michael was disappointed because her father and her husband and all of those things, I believe, took precedence over her relationship with God. She, don't lose fa- track of the fact that she had an idol in her home. <laughs> so God was not first in her life. David had an idol. It just wasn't a statue. It was other women. And he had an idol too. And so the truth is, is that the dissatisfaction will set in if we get that order mixed up. It's okay to give your heart to someone, but just give it to Jesus first. And then give it to the person that you hope, and I would hope you would give it to somebody who also has given their heart to Jesus first. That kind of goes without saying. Here's the bottom line. Jesus isn't looking for churchgoers. Pastors are, but Jesus is not. He's not looking for fans. He's not looking for fake robotic followers, religious zealots. 
He's looking for people who want to actively follow him in pursuit of an authentic relationship with him. Jesus is, is centered in relationship, so he wants people who want that relationship with him. So question to ask yourself is what is in your heart that comes before God? It could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be your employment. It could even be your kids. It could be a lot of things. But what is in your life that might be ahead of God? And the, and the priority has to be reversed so that God's first so that all the other things make sense. Jesus said that when he said, seek my kingdom first and then all these things will be added to you. Second point, let Jesus shape your character first and then help your spouse, not the other way around. Amen? See, too many spouses are trying to change their spouse. And, and they think it's their job to change their character. And the problem is in doing that, we exhibit a kind of character that nobody wants to follow. Because, and I've seen on both sides, it's unfair to say that only wives nag. Because husbands nag, wives nag, kids nag, bosses nag, the neighbor nags, the dog nags, the cat nags, everybody nags. So it's unfair to say that just wives nag. And the problem is when you're trying to change somebody yourself, what you're doing is you just keep throwing arrows at them, and then it turns into bitterness, and then it turns into this sarcasm, and it turns into this condescension. And then if, and if you've got that kind of situation going in your marriage, that's probably because you are choosing to try to shape your spouse's character when what you should be doing, what we all should be doing, is letting Jesus shape my character first, and then I might be able to assist in helping him with my spouse's character. And the way that I assist is by modeling it so they see it and they're attracted to that. They're drawn to that. This is also why if you're a single person, you got to check where you're looking for your boyfriends or girlfriends. Because if you're going to some place where people of low character hang out, you're not going to be successful. Okay? The only club you should be at is Costco. <laughs> you should, you should, okay? <laughs> the only rave should be you being excited about something. You should not be at a rave. You got to wear a wristband. That's not the right place to be. Get out. <laughs> just, just ask yourself some questions like this. In my marriage, what does my environment look like? Because for people who are, who are being shaped in the character of Christ, the environment in their marriage is forgiveness. The environment in their marriage is kindness and compassion. The environment in their marriage is patience. It's joy. It's selfless love. Do you have those things in your marriage? Ask yourself that. If you don't, then ask yourself, do I exhibit those things toward my spouse? Don't ask, well, yo, it's not there because they don't do that to me. That's not what you do when you're trying to live out the character of Christ. Because if Christ acted like that, he'd have never died on a cross. Nope, you're all going to die. Then I'll die on a cross. That's what he would have said. But he didn't say that. Here's some things that are in your marriage that are red flags, manipulation, grudges, domination, argumentativeness. I don't know if I can say that right. Uh, a condemning spirit, a condescending tone, silence. Listen, this affects everybody. I was telling the first service, I've been married 20 years. Okay, nobody's excited about that. That's cool. Um, no, no, it's right. Too late. Too late. Too late. My wife's not in here. You're not going to make her feel any better. Um, and, and I'm a pastor, and my wife's on staff, and two days ago, we had a huge argument that sent one of us to bed a little angry, and the topic was in and out. <laughs> I can't even get into the specifics of it because it's so silly. I'm telling you that so you can feel better. There's no point where you reach 
this level where all of a sudden you don't argue, there's no tension, there's no problems, there's no point where I don't have to exhibit Christ's character anymore. None of that. Somebody asked me after service, who won? The answer to that is I did not get any in and out that night. Number three, let Jesus be your hope first, then hope for your relationship, not the other way around. In other words, you don't put your hope in your relationship. You hope for your relationship. Put your hope in Christ. See, when your hope is in something, it's concrete. It's sure. It's not a blind hope. It's not a hopeful hope. It's, it's a reality that you're just waiting to see happen. That's what real hope is. And that hope only can happen in Christ. But in hoping in Christ, he then allows us to hope for our other things like relationships because we know he's in on it. And if he's in on it, there's always a chance. So if I'm putting Christ if I'm first in my heart and I'm and shaping my character to be like his and letting him shape me in his character, then that means there is hope, even for the worst of scenarios. There's hope. But I don't put my hope in another person or relationship or any of that. I put my hope in Christ. Not my kids, not my job, not my stuff, not my income, not any of that. It's in Christ. Romans 5 says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. How can you glory in your sufferings? This is Paul writing this. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. If you want your marriage to succeed then start looking at all the tough things that are going on in your marriage and determine to place them in the hope of Christ. And then in that hope, you will build endurance or perseverance, and then he will build your character, and you will have hope. And that hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So you will have the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will help you endure through the toughest things in your marriage, and you will then become the person God wants you to be. And as you do that, you will begin to be an example to your spouse. And Lord willing, you're both being an example to each other. And then guess who's affected? Your kids and your family and your job and your neighborhood. And you know who's affected when you don't? It was Michael's husband who went back weeping. It's David's kids who were a mess, and we preached a whole message on it. That's the fallout from not doing it. Now, somebody's sitting here today, and you're saying, I lack hope. I lack character even. I lack the strength to fight. I want to quit. I don't want to go on. And you think your problem is the relationship issues. You think it's your significant other. You think it's your lack of a significant other. You think it's your family, your kids, your boss. But what if those relationships aren't really the issue? They're the symptoms of the issue. And what if the issue isn't that these relationships I have with other humans, because other humans, we always have tension and problems in relationships. And those problems are never one person's fault, and we can only control ourselves. What if the issue is that I don't have the right relationship with my creator? And that if I had the right relationship with my creator, then that would affect all of my other human relationships. And that the disease is that I'm not tight with God. I don't know God. I'm not walking with God. I've not been saved by Christ. And so it's affecting every other relationship around me. Maybe that's the issue. And so I say that because what we want to do before we leave today is give everyone an opportunity to begin that relationship today. What I want to do is say to you that if you're having problems with all your other relationships, that maybe the first thing you should do is consider your relationship with God. And even if you think you've become a Christian before or you've been in church for a long time, or what would they think if they ever knew? That maybe today's the day that you say, I got to get Christ first in my heart. 
And then I got to start following, following his character. And then let my hope be in him. And if you've never done that, I want to give you a chance to do that today. Maybe you've done it before, but you just aren't sure it was really genuine. I'm going to give you a chance today. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. You can pray it out loud if you'd like, or you can pray it to the quietness of your heart. But the only real requirement is that you pray it with a genuine spirit. That it's something that you, that you mean in your heart. There's no, nothing special about these particular set of words. It's really about your heart and how genuine it is between you and God. You might pray this, Jesus, today I invite you into my life. I'm sorry for trying to live life my way. Today I invite you in. Today I want to begin a relationship with you. I believe in faith that you are the Son of God and that you died in my place. I ask that you forgive me of my sins and change my heart so I can live life your way. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, even if it's the 20th time, but it's the first time you've meant it, then I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to challenge you to do something that might be a little risky. There's a, a form at the bottom of this program you received when you came in, and it's perforated, you could tear it. On that form is a place for you to write your name and contact info, and there's a little box that says, I said yes to Jesus. Today I'm giving my life to Christ. Check that box. And then what I'd really love for you to do is take that out into the lobby afterwards and talk to somebody at one of our next step tables. But you could also drop it in the offering we're going to take in just a little bit, uh, and someone from our team will follow up with you. If you want, you can also use uh, the word next and text it to the phone number that will be on the screen, and there will be a link you'll receive. You follow the prompts, and we'll also be in contact with you that way. You can also, again, after service, just head out and talk to someone at our next table. But either way, whatever way you choose, we want to know that you received Christ today, that you invited him in, that you began that relationship. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your spouse, tell your boyfriend or girlfriend. Because it's the most important decision you'll ever make. Remember what we said, because here's what we know now. All relationships, all human relationships, I don't care who they are, they have problems and tension. We know that those problems are never only one person's fault. And we know that we can only control what we do. So my challenge to you is give Jesus your heart first. Let him have your heart first. My challenge to you is that you would put yourself in a position where you can create environments where, where, where Jesus can meet you, right? By putting his heart first, by letting him shape your character first. And then he can begin to meet you and, and, and work with you and your spouse and your people, uh, anybody you're dating, anybody that you're in a relationship with, and begin to, to make things uh, better. And your hope then will be solidified in Christ. Here's my prayer as we close. If you're married, I pray that you would deepen your connection to God and your spouse. If you're single, I pray that you would deepen your ability to wait on the Lord for what he wants. If your heart's been broken, I would pray that you would deepen your reliance on God to provide healing and restoration. And if you're an unmarried couple, especially if you're living together, I will pray that you would deepen your willingness to trust God, that his ways are the best chance that you have to be fulfilled. And with that, as the ushers get ready, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for uh, the power of your word, the story of David and Michael. Just the surprise maybe for some that, that there was such tension, there was such heartache within it. But it's so refreshing to see that it doesn't just happen all in an instant. There, there are things that we have to understand that build up to that. And Father, I'm convinced that's true of everyone here. As the relationships that we're in, 
primarily because we talked about today romantic relationships, but it really is true of our relationships with our families, with our kids, with our bosses, Lord. Uh, even our relationship with you at times, God, that there is the, the, this tension, this, these problems that come up. And Lord, you're not unhappy about that. That's just what makes us human. But Father, I know that you would ask in those moments, even before those moments, that we might prepare by giving you our heart first, by letting you shape our character, by putting our hope in you. And then in that, God, you would meet us and that you would chant. I'm praying that for each couple here, whether dating, living together, married, I pray that you would strengthen their relationship. I pray for those who are brokenhearted, that you would heal and comfort them. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would, we would emerge from this as people who embrace our tensions, our problems, face them, have good discussions, Lord, and bring you in to the equation so that we can follow your path. Thank you, God, again, for your word and for this. And as we give, may we make it an act of worship. As we continue in our worship, may we do it with all of our might as we heard in the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.